Yeah, in the fridge. Hey Josh, uh, grab me a glass of milk. They don't have any milk, but I can get you some milk. That's what he just said. Yeah, I just want some milk. No, you're saying it wrong. You're saying milk. Like it's a disease. <laughs> How do you say it? I'm saying it the way everyone ought to say it. Milk. M-I-L-K. Right, like 2%. Right, whole milk. No, 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 no. Say milkshake. Milkshake. Okay, now say milk. Milk. Are you hearing this? Yeah. The man wants a glass of milk. Milk? Give him the milk, Josh! Donovan. Inside voices, please. Sorry, Dad. My white friends. Josh! Pour me a glass of milk! Why are you yelling at me? Just give him the freaking milk! You guys aren't even saying the same thing! We're all saying milk, Josh! No, you're saying milk! You're saying matter, don't they? How many of you say it the right way? You say milk? Let me see your hands. How many of you? How many of you are the milk? How many of any milk? My mom used to say milk growing up. It used to drive me absolutely crazy. I'm like, mom, it's M-I. It's M-I, not M-E. Come on. Yeah. Well, words do matter. And that's what we're going to talk about today, uh, changing words. And so welcome. We're in our last week of this series called Changing Room. And uh, right inside of your bulletin should be some message notes. You can go ahead and grab those out and grab your pen, do some fill in the blanks. We also want to say welcome to those of you watching in the parent viewing room. Uh, that's a great place to go if you have little ones that might get fussy during the service. We just kindly ask you to take them out the back and uh, we would have an usher that could meet you there and bring you to our parent viewing room where you can watch the service live uh, with us. Well, throughout this series, uh, we've been inviting God to change us by taking off the old self, the old uh, person before we knew Jesus, and uh, putting on a new mindset and our new ways of living. And so the very first week as we, just, as we were setting this up, we talked about how we receive God's grace into our life, and that's so important, and that God's grace accepts us anywhere we're at. Doesn't matter how long we've been gone, doesn't matter where we've been, doesn't matter what we've done. His loving grace accepts us and forgives us no matter what. But he loves us enough that he refuses to leave us there. He wants us to grow and to change, to become more like him. And so in order to have a real lasting change in your life, it's bigger than a New Year's resolution, right? It's a bigger than a 10 step to this or that. Really, it involves this equation of receiving God's grace and then being willing to grow. It's our participation. So the very first thing in your notes is one thing we've been talking about for four weeks is that God's grace plus growth or our participation equals change. And as we've been talking uh, throughout this series, we've been learning about the Apostle Paul and how he wrote this letter uh, to the Christians in the city of Ephesus, reminding them to continually be taking off the old self, the old man, the way you used to live, and to put on your new self by changing your mindsets and being aware of some really important practical things. And uh, what Paul understood is this, that there are little things that if not paid attention to, end up impacting our lives in big, big ways. And so even as we kick this thing off, the first thing that he talked about was lying and being a person of truth. And uh, so we, before we get to that, I just want to reread a couple of these verses. So in case you didn't join us for the other three weeks and you're just joining us today, that we can kind of all be on the same page. And so Paul wrote this letter, and he starts in Ephesians 4.22, and it says this, that you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, 
to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul is reminding us here, and this word created is so important because it speaks to the process that is happening in our lives. That when you make Christ the leader of your life, it's not like all of a sudden you have no more temptation, no more trials, no more relationship issues, no more struggles. It just means this, that you've been forgiven and now that God is taking this journey with you and every day from that point until you take your last breath, God is charging us every day to change, to become more and more and more and more like him. Less of us, more of him. And so in the very next verse, uh, Paul continued and he said, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we're all members of one body. And so in that second week, we talked about putting off falsehood and we do that by knowing the truth of Jesus Christ and being a person of truth and speaking truth that God is wanting us to live this way, that there are uh, many of us that believe the lie that by telling lies, we will feel secure. But in all reality, we all know that the opposite is true, that when we tell a lie, when we don't live in truth, it actually brings insecurity into our life. And so Paul is inviting us in this new way of thinking to be people of truth. Then in the next week, we hit his next practical thing in verse 26. He said, don't sin by letting anger control you. And so this is what we talked about last week. And we talked about how through prayer and making a decision of forgiveness, we can change this important area of our life. We can let go of anger and bitterness and resentment. And for some people, they have open accounts with people's names on it. And it's been years and years and years and years. And you have not been able to move forward because you've had all of this anger and bitterness. And so we talked through forgiveness. And we said how forgiveness is not for the benefit of the offender. But forgiveness is for our benefit. It's so that we can heal and we can move forward. We said that the motivation for forgiveness will never be found in the person that hurt you. And so if you're waiting for that, you're going to wait forever because that motivation will never come. Rather, we find motivation in forgiving others when we zoom out of our context and we recognize how much Jesus has forgiven us of and allows us to forgive others. And so if you miss any of the last three weeks, I just want to encourage you to get to riverwaychurch.com, catch up with us online. And so we enter this last week and we pay attention to this last practical thing that has the ability to influence our life in so many ways. And the moment that I read this next verse, a light bulb's gonna go on and you say, yeah, you're right. I don't know that I wanna talk about it, but Ryan, you're right. And Paul, even more importantly, you're right. Ephesians 4.29, he instructs us in this way. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And I know it's a wide spectrum and how do we define it? Well, this, this word or this phrase, unwholesome talk, is actually meaning a corrupt or a rotten word. Anything that would come out of your mouth that would spread rot into someone else's life. Now, I don't know about you, but like when you eat breakfast, I was at breakfast the other day and I ordered a bowl of fruit and I turned over a couple of the raspberries and they were moldy on the other side. Does that not freak out anybody else? Like, I can't stand mold. Like anything's expired, I look at the date, like if it's within a month, it's like, this thing's gotta go. You know, I, I don't know, it just weirds me out. Uh, but we wouldn't wanna spread rot into somebody else's life, right? But he says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Now, I think it's hard, this is probably hard for every single one of us. But if you are anything like me, uh, this is tough, especially if you feel like you've been given the spiritual gift of sarcasm. Does anybody else have that spiritual gift? 
sarcasm, yeah, you know. And, and sometimes we lead with a joke and we're funny because that's what funny people do, right? Funny people make jokes. But sometimes our sarcasm can come off as hurtful. Or maybe your temptation is to gossip about somebody else because we feel like we need to vent to someone, right? And that's the word, that's a phrase we like to use. I just need to vent. And we think it makes us feel better about ourselves, but in the process, it's hurting how someone else views that person. Is it spreading rot? Is your words bringing life or bringing death? This is really the contrast in which we see. And so in its simplistic terms, Paul is saying this, and it's your next fill-in, to don't let, any wo- don't let any words come out of your mouth that would tear others down. Don't let any word come out of your mouth that would tear somebody else down. How many of you had brothers and sisters? Let me see your hands. Then you know this is an impossible task. It is impossible to not tear somebody else down. But there's that old saying that we learned as kids, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we hear that, we go, what a load of crap. Like, who came up with that? That is not true at all. Because we, we know, we've all had moments. In fact, if I took the microphone and we just passed around the room, we could take the whole morning and everyone could share the story about the time that they got hurt by, because someone said something to them that offended them, that hurt them. Uh, and at the same time, in the same way, we've all had moments that while words are coming out of our mouth, our brain is saying, stop, don't say it. And we say it, and it's like our brain can't catch up fast enough to our mouth. Anybody else experienced that, right? That's called foot-in-mouth disease, foot-in-mouth disease. We've all had that from time to time. We've said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And why do we do this? Why do we gossip or use sarcasm as a way of a little jab or this or that? I think part of the reason is that we regularly, your next fill-in, we regularly forget how powerful our words are. We regularly forget, and by regular, I mean like all the time. We forget this. We forget that our words have power. And the reason we know this is true is because there are husbands and wives who got divorced because of words that were spoken. There are parents who haven't seen their kids in years because of words that were spoken. Nations that have been divided because of words. And James, the brother of Jesus, gives us incredible insight into how powerful our words actually are. And he wrote this in James 3, 7. He said, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. In other words, he's saying even in the first century, there was no fear of any animal. We either killed it or we controlled it. But then he goes on to say this, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, if anybody should be good at words, it should be the brother of Jesus, right? I mean, if you hung out with Jesus as your brother all the time, he would kind of rub off on you. I'm sure James probably said a whole lot less unwholesome things than you and I do. And even he is admitting, no one can tame the tongue. It's impossible. So what do we do? Well, exactly what Paul is trying to help us see, your next villain, that you can control the tongue, but you can never tame it. So we must pay attention to it. You can work to control the tongue, but you will never, ever tame it, so we must pay attention to it. 
And for those of you that have lived a few years longer than maybe some of us, you know that this is true, that it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how mature you are. Given the right circumstance, the right situation, you can say something that's full of deadly poison, can't you? You can say hurtful things that you wish you could take back after the fact. But James describes it as a restless poison. In other words, it has no rest. Your tongue has that ability. Um, does anybody remember when you got your driver's license? Anybody remember that? That day you were excited? Some of you were sad because you didn't get it. <laughs> Others of you were excited because you did. I was so jazzed about driving that the moment I turned 15, literally the day I turned 15, I got my driver's permit and had to endure a year of my parents telling me what a bad driver I was. And then when I turned 16, on the day I turned 16, I went in to get my driver's uh, license. And my dad was a pastor. You know, we never had a lot of money or anything like that. So he was, you know, trying to do some things on the side sometimes to make income. And one of the things that he was doing when, when I was a teenager is that he would buy these cars that had been, like, flooded or something like that, and then he would pay some people to, like, repair them, and then he would refix them as salvage vehicles. And so during these years, we always had kind of an influx of cars kind of coming in and out of our driveway. And so when I was 16, I had my choice between our minivan, no thank you, or this cherry red Trans Am that my dad currently had at the time. And I mean, come on, which one are you choosing? I chose the Trans Am. And so I pull up to my driver's exam. I'm 16 years old, and I can only imagine, as this lady comes out with her clipboard, what she is thinking, right? Oh, silver spoon in the mouth. Here we go, another one of these, right? And she opens the door, and she falls in, because they're bucket seats, you know? She falls into the passenger seat, and I'm driving, and, you know, they almost got me on the, you know, turn left from the second lane. I, they almost got me there, but they didn't. And on that day, I passed my exam by a few points, and that doesn't matter. I passed, and I got my license, and I was so proud to get my ugly mug on that license, just like you were that one day. And you were like, this gives me permission to drive anywhere I want to go, right? I endured the driver's ed classes. I thought it was the abyss. I thought I'd never get out. Those were horrible, but I endured it. I endured the year of driving with my parents. I endured being with the instructor and sweating bullets so I could get this Why? Why did we have to go through all that just to get a driver's license? Because now you are in charge of a powerful vehicle and with it comes great responsibility. And Paul is saying it's, it's in very much the same way. And if, in fact, I think if Paul had his way, we would all have to take a class, we'd all have to pass a test, and then we would get a license to own a mouth. That, that's what I think. We'd get a license to own a mouth. And sometimes like you'd get tickets against your mouth and then sometimes your mouth could be revoked, right? Wouldn't that be good? Uh, have you ever known someone that their mouth should have been revoked? Anybody know anybody, right? Oh, come on. We've all met people. You shouldn't have a mouth. That's terrible. Uh, but it's true. It's a powerful thing and all of us were born with a mouth full. Every single one of us. And Paul is saying, listen, your old self and your old way of living before you met Jesus it may have been acceptable for you to talk like everybody else and for you to damage relationships along the way, but not anymore. Why? Because you're a representation of Jesus Christ. You are a new man becoming more and more like your heavenly father. And the old self needs to be put away. The old way of talking needs to be put away. And the new self, the new mouth needs to be put on. And this whole new mindset that Paul is challenging us into is something that could probably be summed up by something that your grandma taught you. That's your next villain. Think before you speak.
speak. All right, so your grandma told you too, right? Think before you speak. And again, this seems so simplistic and it's something that we all know, but again, we always forget the power of our words. And that's why Paul is saying, listen, this may seem small and it may seem insignificant, but I have seen lives destroyed over words spoken. And so if you want to stay on this path, you better pay close attention to the words that you say. And even in that moment with your teenage son or daughter and you want to say that zinger, to win the moment, you might win it, but you also may poison the relationship in the meantime. When I criticize my spouse to shut up the argument and to win the fight, you can do that, but you might poison the relationship. When I talk behind my coworkers' back, when I gossip about my boss, it will make me feel so much better but you may wreck all of your future opportunities. Think before you speak. When I let my parents have it because they have no idea what it's like to be a teenager and all the pressures that I face, I, I, I can say something that I know will hurt them and give me the space that I'm looking for. But be careful because you may forever damage the relationship that you will one day need and want think before you speak. Why? Why do we need to pay such close attention to this, your next villain? Because our words have the power to do irreparable damage to our relationships and opportunities. Come on, we all know this. Our words have that kind of power. They can damage our relationships to a place that they are irreparable. Our opportunities can be lost. And as exhibit A, I would just hold up Twitter, right? I mean, how much damage has been done by a few words that someone decided to type? But here's Paul's solution. Ephesians 4.29, when he says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And here's the rest, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, and that's important, we'll get back to that in a second, that it may benefit those who listen. And so here's a great question. When I open my mouth and I speak, are the people that are on the other end of that benefiting from my words? And this word building up, this phrase is so important, and it actually mirrors the word edify that we find 58 times in the New Testament. And this word edify or building up actually means to gather material to build a foundation. What an interesting thought that the mind picture that Paul is trying to give us in this moment, that the words that we have and will say to people have the potential to build someone else's foundation upon which they will build the rest of their life. Are other people benefiting from our words? You see, our words, your next fill-in, can help others expand their life and potential. 
Our words can actually expand someone's life and potential. That's so important. And you know this is true. If anybody's ever spoken a word of courage into your life, if anyone's ever spoken a word of hope into your life, if anyone's ever come alongside of you when you were at your lowest and they said something like, I believe in you or I'm with you, it does something to your spirit, doesn't it? It allows you to rise up and live differently. Paul then gets really specific and he says, I want you to build others up according to their needs. Which means this, your next feeling, that we must learn to be aware of what those around us need to hear from us. We must learn to be aware of what those around us, who do you do life with? In your families, at work, at school, in your neighborhood, who are the people around you that God is saying, I want you to build them up with your words. I want you to be aware, according to their needs, what they need, to speak what they need. And so that, on that line where it says learn, would you just circle that word of five or six times, that word learn? Because nobody is just born with this intuition to say, I am going to use words according to their needs. Nobody's born with that. And so if you're thinking to yourself, well, that's just not me. I'll wait for somebody else more spiritual to do that. No, no, no. This is a learned behavior. To pay attention to what God might be saying to you about the people that are most important in your life. You'd say, I know in this moment they need to hear this and so I'm gonna speak it. I know they need a word of encouragement. They need some hope and I'm just gonna say it. Who has God placed in your sphere of influence and what do they need to hear from you? What season of life are they in? Husbands, what does your wife need to hear from you in this season? Wives, what does your husband need to hear? What do your siblings need to hear? In this moment, this chapter of their life, what do your friends need to hear? What does your coworker need to hear? Parents, what do your kids need to hear from you? In this moment of life, I had, a, I had two people this week go out of their way to intentionally encourage me. And one person who was through a text, another person who was, who was just face to face. And they took a moment to just intentionally encourage me. And I can't tell you what that does for me. And you've experienced that as well. It like gives air to your wings, right? Say, well, I can keep doing this. I can keep going. And this encouragement word literally means your next fill in to fill with courage or strength of purpose. Isn't that powerful? Encouragement literally means to fill with courage or strength of purpose. It communicates that you're coming alongside someone saying, I believe in you and I'm with you. I believe in you, I'm with you. And don't we, don't we all need champions like that? I remember when I was in seventh and eighth grade and I would play baseball and my mentor and his wife, they would show up to some of my baseball games and they would pre-write really like annoying, embarrassing things on huge pieces of cardstock paper, like those poster boards. And they would show up and they would wave those banners and they'd be cheering for me, go right! I mean, and no one else is screaming and they're screaming, it'd be so embarrassing. And I was in right field because that's where they put you when you can't really play baseball. And so I'm in right field and I'm just like embarrassed, you know? But at the same time, mixed with my embarrassment, was that I knew there was someone in those stands that were with me, regardless of this game. Something much deeper and more powerful that took root in my heart over time. 
See, the same phenomenon you've experienced it multiplied by thousands of cheering fans. When you've been at a stadium, it's come to known as the home field advantage or the home court advantage. And your words have the same power of momentum in somebody's life. You can create home field advantage for someone, but all of that power is within our control. And you see, for many of us, our old self would think about encouraging people, but we wouldn't. And you know why? Because of our own insecurities. Well, if I'm not going to get built up, I don't, certainly don't want to build anybody else up. And Paul's saying, no, 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 listen. This is, oh, let me invite you into a whole new way of thinking. That as you begin to put off your old self and you put on this new mindset and you become more like your heavenly father and as you use words to encourage people, as you words, use words to lift people up, guess what it causes them to do? To begin to use words even back into your own life of encouragement, strength, words of purpose, and kindness. And that's why Paul said this in Romans 14, 19. He said, let us make therefore every effort, everybody say every effort, every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. There's that word edify again. Let's do everything within our power to build up those around us. And to be aware and think, what's going to infuse hope into that person right now? What's going to infuse grace into that person right now? And so our next challenge, your next feeling, is to make a plan to be encouraging and follow through with your words. Make a plan to be encouraging. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I think it a lot more than I actually do it. Is anybody else like that? You think about doing something nice much more than you actually follow through? And Paul would say, this whole new mindset is great, but it means nothing unless we actually make a plan of encouragement to speak life into someone else around us. And I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I believe that we grossly underestimate how deeply those around us need encouragement. I think we grossly underestimate how much our spouse needs our encouragement. We grossly underestimate how much our kids need our encouragement no matter what stage of life they're in. We underestimate the power of an affirming word. And I love what David wrote, or Solomon wrote in Proverbs 16, 24 when he said this, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Isn't that a great verse? That our words actually can bring health to people's bodies. It brings wholeness. And so we have this ever-present power to speak truth into people's lives. And we can pray and ask God to give us those kinds of words that will bring sweetness to the soul and health to the body. And I don't know about you, but I just want my prayer to be, God, I want to be one of those people that speaks life into someone else. I want to be the kind of person that when they leave being around me, that they feel like they can go tackle life no matter what they're facing. I want to be the kind of person that because they spent time with me, they feel better about their future and filled with hope. And Paul's saying yes. But it involves taking off the old self, the old way of thinking, and putting on this new mindset and learning this behavior that doesn't come naturally. And so your last fill-in, speaking the words of encouragement that the Holy Spirit places on our hearts is a life-changing practice in obedience and humility. It's obedience when you think it to say, all right, I'm actually going to say it. I'm going to humble myself. 
Even though in this moment of my life, I don't feel very encouraged, even in this moment of my life, I don't feel very supported, I am gonna use my words to lift up somebody else. I'll tell you what, that takes humility, it takes obedience. And when we operate like that, we are never more like our heavenly Father. And I was, as I was preparing for this talk, I came across this story that I just thought was so impactful and put such a bow on this thing, and so I wanna read it to you before we close. Uh, this story, it's a true story from a professor out of California. And he said, it was the 1970s that I met a young man with brown wavy hair, sad green eyes, and a mouth that never seemed to smile. His name was Edward, and he stood over six feet tall. Edward had enrolled in a music theory class that I was teaching in a beautiful California community college located in the small, sleepy town of Moorpark. The first day of class, the students mill around as they decide what seat to take is always interesting to me. Some are confident, more aggressive than others, claiming the front row for themselves. Others, less confident, fill up the middle section. And the back row is usually reserved for the shy students or even those who don't even want to be here in the first place. It was hard to not notice the only six-foot boy, Edward, as he walked into the classroom a few minutes late and positioned himself in the back row. He slumped into his chair and lowered his head with his arms folded across his chest, and this would be his general entrance into class for the remainder of the semester. As weeks progressed and tests were given, Edward did not do well. He managed to turn in homework, which was marked way below his ability level with my notes. He never participated in class discussion or answered any questions. To my knowledge, he had no friends whatsoever. Edward missed too many classes, and when he did come, he carried himself like an old man, as though he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders. The semester was winding down, and finals were about to begin, and I was worried about Edward's reaction to his final grade. He was the last one to finish his final exam, and as I waited, I said a silent prayer for him. I so much wanted to be able to give him a good grade. In those days, I had a reputation for being a strict but fair grading instructor. I also had the largest enrollment in the music department. It was important that I live up to my reputation. So when Edward finished his exam that day, he looked completely worn out and defeated. I wished him good luck and told him that I would hand out the final grades this coming Tuesday at 9 a.m. My thoughts all weekend continued to lead me to Edward and the final exam that he struggled with. I had trouble sleeping those nights. Somehow I knew that the grade I would give him would be a turning point in this young man's life. But Edward was no exception. He would be given the grade he deserved. And maybe he needed to learn the biggest lesson of all, to be responsible for his own actions. I felt good about my decision. I sat in my office looking at the long line of students waiting to come in that Tuesday to receive their final grade. And after each student left my office, I would take a sneak peek at the line to see where Edward was. After an hour or so, the line became shorter and shorter, and there was still no Edward. I began to worry. Did something happen to him at home to delay him? Was he sick? Was there an accident on the way to school? The last student in line met with me and received their grades and left. Where is Edward? Shall I wait a little longer? Am I fooling myself? He's not coming. So I decided to lock up my office and go home. I had done all I could, but something deep within me continued to gnaw at me. I felt sick to my stomach. 
My eyes filled with tears. What is wrong with me? I took some deep breaths, sat back and closed my eyes. In front of me lay the papers, the final exam for Edward. I had not decided what kind of grade to give him, but it didn't matter anyway as he wasn't showing up. But I looked down at the exam with his name printed on it and saw an imaginary D as his final grade. I got up from my chair, gathered my things, closed the office door behind me, and as I reached for my keys to lock up my office, I heard the footsteps behind me. I held my breath, and as I turned around, I saw Edward standing behind me. He apologized for being late and asked if there was any way he could still receive his final exam and grade. I hesitated for a few seconds and cautiously opened the door and asked him to have a seat. He looked just terrible. His eyes were sunk with dark black circles under them and the hollows of his cheek were drawn. His skin was pale and his hair was matted. He was wearing the same clothes he had worn the last time I saw him. Edward said to me, I know that I'm getting a low grade on my final. I realize that I've not been participating in class and that I'm an embarrassment to you and to others. I'm lazy, I'm selfish, I'm stupid, and an ugly, no good for anything person. I have no place on this earth, and what's more, no one could ever love a person like me. I'm a hopeless case without any future. I could not believe my ears. I wanted to interrupt him to convince him that he was none of those things, but instead I let him talk. I listened with my heart and not my head. I fought back my own tears to manifest my strength and professionalism. When he had finished, I faced him. I looked directly into his very sad eyes and said, Edward, your final grade is an A. His reaction was one of total and complete surprise. You are giving me an A? Me? Why would you give me an A when I did such a poor job in your class and on my final exam? Why would you do that? And my answer to Edward was this. That you may appear to be a D student, but you are an A person. I believe in you now, and I will always believe in you. I love you, I'm here for you now, and I will always be here for you. Never, ever forget that. Now go create the life you dream of. Believe in yourself, I will be watching. In all of my years of teaching, I had never graded a student this way. Later that evening, as I prepared to go to sleep, I began to question what I had done. Did I make a terrible mistake? Had Edward just filled the room with lies to win me over and get a higher grade? Finally, my exhausted mind and body gave way to a deep sleep. And at the crack of dawn the next morning, the phone rang, and in a fog, I tried to sound alert as I answered it. The voice on the phone asked me if I were Edwards' music theory teacher at Moore Park College. I told him yes, and I waited. The man's voice said, I am a priest from Ed Edwards' church, and I have something to tell you. Edwards has suffered years and years of abuse, both mentally and verbally, from his family. And today I want to thank you on behalf of Edward and myself for saving his life. The priest went on to explain to me the events leading up to this phone call. 
He said, the day that Edward came to meet with me regarding his final grade, he had left a note on his pillow that read, I'm sorry that I could not be the kind of son and brother that you wanted me to be. All I ever wanted was to be loved. I'm sorry for being unlovable. I will go now. You will find me in the closet. I'm sorry for any inconvenience I have caused you. Please have my body cremated. My small savings is in the top right-hand drawer of the dresser. Edward wrote that note prior to meeting with me. His plan was to see me one last time before taking his own life. And when I gave him an A and told him that I believed in him, loved him, and would be here for him, something changed within him. He had never heard those words before, and it gave them something that we call hope. He left my office feeling positive and uplifted for the first time in his life. He felt so good, he decided to take a long walk in the surrounding hills and relive the confirmation he had just heard. He was loved. Yes, someone in his useless life loved him and believed in him. He forgot all about his plan to do away with himself. Edward re-enrolled in my music theory class the next semester. He worked hard, tutored other students in the class after school three days a week, and this time passed his final exam 100% and got a genuine A+. Today, Edward has a beautiful wife and four sweet children. He is a successful dentist in Southern California and donates his spare time to abused children, helping them to find love, acceptance, and hope. There's power in our words. And Paul is saying, listen, I want you to lean in on this idea that even though you may not realize that you have the ability with your words to lay a foundation in which other people will build their life upon, what words will you choose? Will it be your old way of talking and your old insecurity? Or would you, with God's help, be able to step into this place of being a new man, more like your heavenly Father, and speak words of life that would build up and encourage? See, every single one of us get to make that choice. And I want to be known for that. So I'd like us to take a moment to pray. Can we do that? Would you mind just closing your eyes all over this room? And I just want us to take 30 seconds between you and God. And maybe you're here today, you're not a spiritual person. You can just take this moment to maybe just meditate on some of the things we talked about today because I think this principle works whether or not you're a Christ follower or not. There is power in the words that we choose. But if you are a Christ follower, maybe in this moment you would ask him to show you the people in your life that need words of life from you. So let's do that right now. Father, 
would you forgive us for those moments when we've allowed impulse to drive our words, when we've allowed our frustration or even our insecurity to dictate the words that come out of our mouth and we're asking for your help to be made more like you. That the belief that we have in our heart for others would come out in our words. That the hope we have for others would be evident in the encouragement that comes out of our mouth. That you would help us to build people up in such a way that they'd be able to live out your plan for their life because of how you used us to encourage them. So help us to step into that space, to take off our old self and to change to become more like you in this area. In Jesus' name, amen.